Well, as we come to Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, I confess this morning that this is a very short section in Luke's gospel. And this is one that has created some difficulty for some, particularly in understanding what Jesus is talking about here and what Luke records in the gospel. This is traditionally called the widow's might. And yet I think there's more to this passage than is often understood. Most people come to this passage and immediately start to think about tithing. And I'm sure that's what most of you have been thinking this morning. Well, the pastor's going to go off on tithing this morning. And there's some application of that truth in here. But I think there's far more greater things that we draw from this passage than that. Because as we come to this passage, I think the one emphasis that Luke has here, and you see this in the context of what has been previously stated, and that is the nature of true saving religion. What is it? Well, we live in a day when people will automatically say, well, I'm not real religious, but I am spiritual. I've never quite understood what that means. Because all of us by nature are religious. And yet, as John Owen said in one of his works, that the story of the Bible is really a story of the growth and declension of true saving religion. They think that's true. We see the decline of religion under the Old Testament. We see the rise and the growth of religion. And we see that even in the uh, generations before us. But here in this passage of Scripture, I want us to understand that the main truth of what Luke is, is trying to impress upon his hearers is that true saving religion results in something far greater than what the religious leaders of that day understood. And so, as we look at this passage, we saw last week, particularly Jesus dealing with the Sadducees, and then dealing with the issue of the resurrection, and then dealing with this issue of Christ being David's son. And then he comes to the end of that and gives a warning to his disciples. That warning there in chapter 20, verses 46 and 47, is what gives us the context for these four verses here. Because what Jesus is impressing, particularly upon his disciples, they are the ones who have committed themselves to following him. And if they're going to follow him, then they're going to have to know what they need to do to follow him. So how am I going to live as a a man who has true saving religion? And so this story of this widow, this poor widow, as Jesus describes here, is really an illustration for us. It's an illustration that shows the contrast between the religion of the scribes and the religion that Jesus came to bring to those who would follow him. 
And there's quite a, a, a contrast between the two. And so I've shown in this outline, and this is, um, this is a very simple way to look at it. And then we can draw some applications from it. But as we look at this text, Jesus has given a warning. He says, beware of the scribes. Beware of how they desire to walk in their long robes. Beware of how they greet people. Beware of how they like to have the places of honor. Beware of them, for they devour widows' houses. And that's really key to understanding verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21. Jesus here in our passage is commending this poor widow. Jesus is condemning the rich men. And we often miss that. One particular well-noted evangelical pastor, and I cringed when I heard it, and I won't tell you his name, but he says the woman was not commended for her gift. In fact, she was angry. And as I thought about that, I'm thinking, well, maybe there's some truth to that. But what he's talking about here is in the context, these scribes condemned widows. These scribes despised widows. These scribes were abusing widows as teachers of the law. And I thought, there's a lot of truth in that, but we don't want to miss the point of the, the parallel or the contrast here between the two kinds of religions. But there is certainly an abuse, and we see that even in our own day. An abuse even in religious circles. And let me say that Jesus categorically condemns abuse in any form in religion. We have seen too much abuse in our day in religion. We even had a case a number of years ago in our own denomination of a pastor who had misused his office. And I think we need to be careful that we understand in this passage that Jesus condemns the type of religion that the Pharisees and scribes prided themselves in. They did not have a high view of the law. In fact, they took a very low view of the law. They despised the law. They despised the, the religion of Israel, and yet they prided themselves in it. And you see that more particularly in this account of the poor widow. Because they devour widows' houses. In other words, they show no compassion to them. In the context of our passage, as Jesus is there in the temple area, it says he's looking up. And Mark in his parallel account there in chapter 12 verse 41 shows similar wording it's a little different but Jesus is looking up and sees the scene of rich men casting their gifts into the treasury 
And then he saw the certain, not a widow, but a poor widow, casting in her two mites. Two mites would have been um, a coin, a, a coin that was used by Jews in that day. It's just a, a, a brass coin. She had two of them. She cast them into the treasury. And the scene here is that there were places within the temple area where people could come and give their offering. They could put their, their offering in the box, and there were a number of boxes there where they could give. But as the rich men are casting their gifts in, there's this scene of them displaying their righteousness before men. And this certain little widow and only two mites. There wasn't much there to show. She just simply placed it in the coffer. And the scribes in that day were the ones who had the function <clears throat> of dispersing those monies, particularly for the poor and for the widow. It's almost the same thought there in First Timothy chapter 6. The early church, particularly looking out for widows in need. And that was their ministry, was to collect that money and disperse it to the widows. And so they would often be very stingy. They would often be very... um, would rarely want to give to those in need. But I think for us to catch a a better sense of what is happening here, Luke doesn't give us the details that Matthew gives. And I'm not going to go into all of Matthew chapter 23. But there in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is speaking to the multitudes, and he's with his disciples, and he says to them, The scribes and Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they sit in places of authority. They sit in that lawful office and they do not fulfill that office rightly. They observe and do things that are contrary to the law. Jesus points out there in Matthew chapter 23 the hypocrisy of those scribes and Pharisees. How they walk around with these little leather boxes on their foreheads containing portions of the law of God. And how they delight in calling each other rabbi or teacher. And there in the whole chapter of chapter 23 Jesus gives a number of woes unto them their judgments because of their hypocrisy and one of those things is that they shut up the kingdom of heaven against men for ye neither go in yourselves neither suffer ye them that are entering and Jesus says woe unto them hypocrites For they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. It's the same 
context of what we saw last week. Jesus says, woe unto them. They are blind guides who are nothing more than hypocrites. Matthew's gospel shows that Jesus didn't have kind words for the religious leaders. And as we think on this in the context of our passage here, Jesus reminds us that they were hypocritical in their religion, that they did not regard the needs of widows particularly, but anyone who was in need. And so here as we look at this this scene of Jesus observing the rich men, the text says he looked up and he saw the rich men casting their gifts. And he saw the poor widow casting in her two mites. Jesus is observing because he knows the hearts of men. We've already seen the wisdom of Christ in this entire section of Luke's gospel, particularly as he comes into Jerusalem. We see the wisdom of Christ here again. As he's observing, as he's thinking about these religious leaders and their abuse of the system and their abuse of those under their care. And this sets up the rest of chapter 21 for Jesus' judgment against the city of Jerusalem. Notice what he says there in verse 3. I say unto you that this poor widow has cast in more than all of them. For these out of their abundance cast in their offerings unto God. But she of her little means has cast in all the living that she had. Now some will come to this text and say that the wealthy are to give to the kingdom. This is an extreme view, obviously. And that everyone is to give, and they're to give everything that they can possibly give. That's not what Jesus is talking about. This little widow had nothing to give. She had only two brass coins. And Jesus here, as he shows that they are giving of their wealth and she's giving of her meager income, a coin would have been a day's wage. Jesus is making the contrast here that the religion of the Pharisees was a religion that cost nothing. It didn't cost any service. It didn't cost anything like what the Apostle Paul reminds us of there in Galatians chapter 6. In fact, they didn't care for anyone. They cared only for themselves. And so here, in the religion of the Pharisees, you see that formal religion. Oh, saints of God, be very, very careful and on guard against formal religion. 
Formal religion is that outward religion that has all of the ceremony. Even in its simplicity, it can be formal. That's the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes. It's a formal religion. It's only outward. It has nothing of the heart. They were filled with pride. They were filled with disdain. They despised repentance. They despised the preaching of Jesus. And they, like many of us, think that preaching is best that keeps a respectable distance. Preaching is fine. I like that guy's preaching. Because I can keep a distance from it. And really, for the Pharisees, they what caused this contention with Jesus was his coming into the temple area and preaching and teaching how many times? Luke 19, 40 says, 19 verse 47 says, he taught daily in the temple. And what was the response of the chief priests and scribes? They sought to destroy him. They wanted nothing to do with this Jesus. And so they were really, really irate over his preaching. Because the preaching of Jesus called people to repentance. Jesus' message here in the temple area is no different than what he has preached previously in Luke's gospel. That men must repent and believe the gospel. And so Jesus shows here the contrast that this religion is what the prophet condemned in Jeremiah when he talked about the false sheep who scatter the flock of Israel. A true shepherd as Jesus describes in the Gospel of John, will seek to go after the one who is, who is, who is lost, go after the one who is, has wandered away. He will, he will care for them. And that is a high and holy task, but they did not think it was a task that they really wanted to do. And so you see the religion of the Pharisees. There was no religion of the heart. And yet as we come to the contrast seen in this poor widow who contrasts religion not of performance or of formality, but a religion that results in a life of devotion. That true religion that the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to is a religion that results in holiness and devotion to him. Now, if one's heart is not changed, if one's heart is like a Pharisee, then they are not going to to have a religion that really profits anything. But here, as we see the contrast in the life of this poor widow, 
Luke describes her as a poor widow. She's not just a widow, but she's a poor widow. And as she cast in her two little coins, she cast in all that she had. She cast in that which cost her everything. She was, as it is described here in our passage, that she cast in more than they than all of them. Now we need to be careful here that somehow Jesus is commending the amount of giving. He is not. He says they gave out of their abundance. They have wealth. They can they can give as much as they possibly can give. But she didn't give of her wealth. She gave what little she had. Oftentimes it's assumed here in this passage that there's a value put on it, that she didn't give the exact tenth. And that's really kind of, kind of what is in the mind of the scribes and Pharisees. That's all she's giving? Well, isn't there, there a law that she has to give, give so much, a tenth? for the uh, temple tax, a tenth for this and a tenth for that. That's really the heart here. It's, it's, it's a form of bondage. It's a, it's a form of legalism. And yet here this woman demonstrates for us that true saving religion is found in a tender and humble heart. There in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, the prophet says, A new heart I will give unto you. I will take out that heart of stone and give thee a heart of flesh. And there we find that the Pharisees and scribes had stone hearts. They had no care and compassion for anyone. But here... Jesus commends this woman as the epitome of true religion. That it moves beyond formality, but it results in holy living. That saving faith is found, Martin Luther says, in the fruits of righteousness. If one has no fruits of righteousness, they have no saving faith. And so the example of this poor widow for us is an example of rich and costly giving. Not just in terms of monetary giving, but her whole life was an offering. It was a costly thing. A man can give of his wealth and have no charity toward God. A man who has received saving grace will give to the Lord all that he has. Just as the woman who washed the feet of Jesus, she poured costly perfume upon his feet, she wiped his feet with her tears. She gave 
because she had received. And so here we find Jesus condemning the abuse and neglect of the poor. And this is really the heart of this. And I think this is where Matthew Henry, and he always shines, but this is where Matthew Henry really shines. Because he says, Jesus has his eye upon us to observe that we give to the poor and contribute to the works of piety and charity. There is a wonderful application, and there are many more things that could be said. There's a wonderful application that Christians, if they have that true saving religion, will always, and I say always, practice benevolent compassion toward others. You want to, to determine the measure of a man's faith? Or his walk with Christ? See how stingy they are. See how selfish they are. Because this woman practices that compassion. This woman practices a faith that is not stingy, but is giving toward others. And real saving religion is a real Experiment, experimental acquaintance with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in reform circles today, there is too much formality, too much formalism. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor. We don't have bells and incense and all of that. You can have the most simple form of worship, and it can be nothing more than formality. And Jesus describes it in Mark chapter 7, when he says, This people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That is formal religion. A religion that's only concerned with the externals, not with the matters of the heart. But both things, the outward and the inward, must coincide. True saving religion is a religion that is always concerned with the outward as well as the inward. A.W. Pink, who was very influential in my coming to understand the doctrines of grace, says it so well in his exposition on saving faith. He says that the test of saving faith is seen in in a number of ways. But he says, when we think about saving faith, he says, how many rest on their sound doctrinal views of Christ? They believe very firmly in his deity and his humanity, his perfect life, his vicarious death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, and his soon coming again. And yet, it is only a formality. He, he, just, he draws from James chapter 2 and verse 19. That the demons believe and tremble. And he says, O oh, reader, 
Saving faith in Christ is much more than assenting to the teachings of the Scripture concerning Christ. Saving faith is giving up the soul unto Christ to be saved, to renounce all and to yield fully unto Him. And we can have our doctrine right and our hearts are far from God. I don't want us to miss this point that we must watch our doctrine and our life. There should be a connection between the two. But if we have right doctrine and like the Pharisees have the wrong practice or have no desire to draw near unto Christ, then it's all formality. And he says, how many make the mistake that the absence of doubt is proof that they have savingly come to Christ? He says, beware that we not impress upon people that for for them to be a believer, to have true saving faith, that they must abandon all doubt. There are times when we will have doubt, but we cast our doubt upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we find that he strengthens us. One other point I want to draw out of that for the sake of time. He says, many make the mistake of the fear of God's wrath for a hatred of sin. He says, if a man has more fear of the wrath of God than the hatred of his own sin, he does not have true saving faith. And yet there's so many ways we make the mistake of having this spiritual assurance when our hearts are far from God. He says, we don't want to be like the Pharisees and the scribes who follow formality. But we want to find that our, the sole ground of our faith is firmly fixed in Christ. And the question this morning for us who are sitting here, is our faith firmly established in Christ alone? Because if it's not then the warning goes out to you this morning that you must repent, that you must turn from your sin. It's so easy for us to have an empty profession, to have a false security. But in John Bunyan's Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ, he says this, How shall we know that such men are coming to Christ? The answer is they they cry out at sin, being burdened with it as an exceedingly bitter thing. And then the question he asks, do they fly from their sin? Do they fly from it as a deadly serpent? Do they cry out the insufficiency of their own righteousness as to justification in the sight of God? Do they cry out after the Lord Jesus Christ to save them? Do they see more worth and merit 
in one drop of Christ's blood to save them than in all the sins of the world to damn their souls? Are they tender of sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they favor Christ in this world and do they leave all for the sake of following him? This is more powerful passage than you thought because it really calls us, as as Matthew Henry rightly describes, that we must observe how we give to the poor and contribute to the works of piety and charity. Edmund Clowney, who used to teach at Westminster Seminary, who I believe now is with the Lord, said that there's two two purposes of the church. The first time I thought about this, I thought, wow, this is kind of revolutionary. He says the main purpose of the church is to preach the gospel and to save souls. But the second purpose of the church is works of piety and mercy. And the church in our day has really neglected the ministry of mercy, has neglected piety and charity for a religion that is just all academic. And the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I have studied and and looked at, at the Puritans. We don't want to put them on a pedestal. But we want to see that oftentimes our religion is no better than the Pharisees and the scribes. Because here there's also a warning about judging others. About looking at those around us who we might just cast suspicion upon. James verse chapter 1 verse 27 says that pure religion and undefiled before God is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world caring for the poor and for those in need is a matter of true religion Jesus clearly condemns the abuse and neglect of the poor he condemns the, the widow, the neglect of the widows. It's interesting that in the life and ministry of Charles Spurgeon, I have come to grow quite fond of Charles Spurgeon. I certainly depart from him in many ways. But I appreciate his approach to pastoral ministry. And one of the things in his pastoral ministry was a mercy ministry, a benevolence ministry. Charles Spurgeon wanted to see orphans and the poor cared for in a day when the church cared for them and not the civil magistrate. And here we could go on and and speak about the importance of a benevolent ministry. But if a church only is concerned with, with formal religion and not for caring for those in need, then the question is, is it true saving religion? Because Charles Spurgeon believed 
that those whose hearts are changed by the gospel are men and women who would show charity and compassion to others. And I'm afraid often we have no compassion or care for others. That is really the heart of what Jesus condemns here. I want to draw our attention quickly to James chapter 3. see a lot of parallel here between James chapter 3 and our passage here in Luke. But in verse 17... James says that the wisdom, and where does wisdom come from? From Christ. The wisdom that is from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good works, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. Of them that make peace. And here verse 13 has in mind that those who labor in the ministry of the gospel bring peace. And in their bringing peace, they sow fruits of righteousness that causes peace to be seen in the world The question for us this morning as we think about this passage is how does my religion measure up to what Jesus says about true religion? Am I a peacemaker? Am I one who is pure and holy before God? Do I live a sanctified and holy life Am I a person that shows mercy and compassion to others? Is my life free from partiality without hypocrisy? Can we say, as James reminds us, that pure religion is to visit those in their affliction and to keep oneself pure and unspotted from the world? Sadly, in reform circles, the ministry of the diaconate in the 1800s was pretty much abandoned among the early covenanters in America. All of that work was relegated to trustees and it was relegated to other entities. I want to say this in closing because I want to bring some application out of this and hopefully some of this has been helpful This is not critical of our ministry here. Please don't get me wrong, but oftentimes our diaconal ministry is seen as washing tables, as making sure we have a paved parking lot. And all of that is right. That is what deacons should do. But diaconal ministry goes far beyond that. Because if Charles Spurgeon is right, benevolence and mercy ministry and social concern is the issue of the church. And in a day when liberals and and unbelievers have relegated um, the church to just simply a social gospel, we must understand 
that the ministry of the church involves both the preaching of the gospel and the mercy ministry for those in need. And as we think upon these things, and these are things that perhaps might be good points of conversation later today, I would just remind us this morning that true religion always results in a change in heart, a change in affection, a change in our will. And I would plead with you this morning that you would think upon these things and look to the Lord Jesus Christ and find in him one who will save your souls, one who will give unto unto you his mercy and his compassion. And may we find that true saving faith always goes beyond just formality, but it results in hearts that are changed and transformed by Christ. Is your heart changed today? Are you seeking to live that holy life? Are you seeking to draw ever closer to Christ? Oh, I would plead with you this morning to turn to Christ and flee from the wrath that is to come and embrace Him with all of your heart and find Him to be the one who grants mercy and grace. And then as He has granted mercy and grace to you, show that to others we might indeed show that we are children of God. May we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give thee thanks this morning that thou has condescended to us, that thou has given us life, that by thy cross you have drawn unto thyself sinners. And we plead this morning that we might turn away from that pharisaical, formal religion of the Pharisees and scribes. May we embrace with all of our heart that religion that is able to save us, save our souls. Oh Lord, give us hearts of compassion toward others. May we see a tenderness and compassion for one another and even for those outside of the faith. O Lord, our God, we plead for thee this morning that you would send forth thy spirit upon us that we might understand afresh what our duty is. And we give thee praise, honor, and glory as we worship thee and give thee thanks. Amen. Let us stand and sing our final psalm number 115a, Lord, not to us, not unto us.